Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Sometimes humans think they know better than nature, but we have to remember that we are a part of nature. And sometimes, even though we may be well-intentioned or think we're doing something positive, if we don't stop and think about how it connects to everything else, we might overlook something and it might end up being kind of negative. When I think about the future, I can't help but wonder what kind of world will be waiting for kids like me. Will we still see vibrant fall colors? Will we still be able to save our endangered species like sea turtles and tigers? Will families still be able to live close to the ocean? I'd like to think so. That's why I'm trying to learn as much as I can about climate change science, stories, and solutions, and share what I learn with all of you. Together, we can decide what type of future we want for our planet, and discover the power we have in shaping it. This is We the Children, the podcast where kids talk climate change. I'm Zach, your host. I'm 12 years old and based in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Claire, fellow eco-enthusiast and Zach's teacher. Hey Claire, can you guess which food has an infinite shelf life? I'd say Twinkies, but that's probably not a food, is it? No, but it is something sweet. It's honey. Did you know that archaeologists found honey in King Tut's tomb in Egypt that was over 3,000 years old? And it was still edible. Whoa, that's incredible. Also hard to believe? It's true. Honey, while sweet and delicious, has also been considered a medicine in many cultures for thousands of years. And while honey by itself is amazing, what's even more fascinating is who makes it. Bees. Okay, now I'm interested, and maybe a little hungry. Our guest today is an expert in all things bees. In fact, working with bees has taken her all around the world, including South America, Mexico, Jamaica, Nicaragua, Spain, France, Italy, and Canada. Coming to us from Santa Fe, New Mexico, Melanie Kirby is an expert in beekeeping, bee research, and pollinator conservation. She's also a queen bee breeder. How cool is that? With a commitment to preserving our planet's ecosystems, Melanie's work revolves around understanding and protecting bees. From bee conservation and habitat preservation 
to community engagement and education, Melanie's dedication is truly inspiring. Through her role as co-founder of Zia Queen Bees, she specializes in breeding regionally adaptive bees in the southern Rocky Mountains. Melanie is a Fulbright National Geographic Storytelling Fellow and holds a graduate degree in entomology. She's a writer, researcher, artist, and mom. I can't wait to learn more about the critical role bees play in our ecosystem. So let's get the latest buzz about bees from Melanie Kirby. I like to tell people that the bees found me by assignment. I enlisted as a United States Peace Corps volunteer, and I was stationed in Paraguay in South America as a beekeeping extensionist volunteer. And I really didn't know much about them until that experience. And so they found me in the jungles of South America. (laughs) And I'm very happy they did. What role do bees play in our ecosystem? Bees play a very significant role in our ecosystems. They provide a myriad of ecosystem services. One of the main ones, of course, that people think of is pollination. So many bees rely on pollen as part of their nutrition. The pollen is their protein and nectar is their carbohydrate, and they need both to have a complete diet. But some bee species are very what we call flower specific, and they'll only eat from certain flowers. And then there are some that are generalists. They will actually eat from all different kinds of flowers. Depending on the kind of bee, they provide a really unique and important service to the plants that they're visiting by helping to pollinate them. This process allows the plant to bear fruit or seeds. So bees, in a big way, help create the future. Those seeds become the next generation carrying with them the memories of the seasons before. All this impacts us as well. The plants the bees pollinate become the food that we eat. They also help to produce a lot of different plant medicines as well, which help to keep us healthy, but also help to keep a lot of different wild animals healthy too. Can you talk us through how your work with bees has changed over time? My experience as a volunteer was really enlightening. I got to work with different cultures. I actually got to work a lot with indigenous farmers, the Guarani people in Paraguay. And a lot of them grew food just for their family. And they also were interested in being able to produce honey, which for them and for many people around the world is considered medicine. So I was able to work with different people in my community. I worked with a women's group. I also worked with several farmers to help them establish beehives. It was really exciting because, you know, we were in the jungles and then we would find these wild hives that were living in the cocoa trees. We would cut down these old cocoa trees, which weren't actually alive anymore. That's why the bees were able to live inside of them. And we would do what was called a trociego, which was actually just relocating the bees from the log into a box that then we could carry back to the apiary, which is a place where bees are kept, and then be able to manage them. And then they could harvest honey from them as they filled up. So that was my first experience with working with others. And then I ended up 
just really becoming quite fascinated with bees. And one of my really good friends in Peace Corps had grown up in Hawaii. And so her mom had invited me out to go visit. She had a flower farm. So I got to work at a flower farm. And while I was there on the big island of Hawaii, I learned that there were several what we call commercial queen rearing operations, where they make a bunch of queen bees that then they share with beekeepers all over the country and even ship internationally. I started working at one of those places and was there for a season and then switched to another one that was there on the big island and was there for five years learning how to rear queen mama bees. But after five years on Hawaii's big island, Melanie was ready to embark on a new adventure and learn more about sustainable beekeeping practices. She was quickly introduced to migratory beekeeping. Also known as mobile beekeeping, migratory beekeeping involves actually moving bee colonies from one place to another to improve honey production, pollination services, and sometimes both. Mobile beekeepers will load their beehives onto trucks or trailers and travel, often hundreds or even thousands of miles, to all kinds of agricultural regions where crops or wildflowers require pollination services. This led her to Florida, where she met her farm partner, Mark. Mark's from Michigan, but he would take his bees in the winter to Florida, where it was warmer. So we started moving his bees from Michigan to Florida, and then I helped him multiply them because I knew how to make queen bees. And so we left half of, I call it his flock in Michigan, and we brought the other half to New Mexico. And so, yeah, we used to move our bees between Michigan and New Mexico, and then now more recently between New Mexico and California, where we actually do what's called breeding exchanges. So we're able to follow the different blooms in different places. And some places, of course, their spring comes earlier. So we can go to those places and be able to help multiply our bees and then share them with people and then come back to our home region and do it again. Definition time. A breeding exchange refers to a collaborative effort among beekeepers to exchange queen bees or genetic material in order to introduce new traits into a bee colony. This practice helps beekeepers improve the resilience, productivity, and adaptability of their bee populations by incorporating desirable traits such as disease resistance, honey production, and temperament. It's also a community exchange where beekeepers share their expertise and unique experiences, as well as invaluable resources that support sustainable breeding strategies and conservation. How does your cultural heritage inform the work that you do? Thanks for asking. I grew up in southern New Mexico. My family is a part of what's called Tortugas Pueblo. Tortugas Pueblo is a state-recognized tribal community. And so what that means is that we don't have a designated space, but our community has actually been in the same place for a really, really, really long time. It's a smaller community, but we actually do follow a lot of our ancestral practices. What's interesting about being an Indigenous person is that we come to learn that there's so many different kinds of Indigenous people around the world. And so not all tribes are the same, but there are some similarities. And one of the, I want to say, sort of philosophical underpinnings of many Indigenous communities is that we recognize how interconnected everything is. And we also realize that our actions really help to either encourage or 
to not encourage certain things. So we work together with our environment to try and live more peacefully and also in positive stewardship with the planet. For me as a beekeeper, my cultural heritage really instilled in me a profound sense of reverence. I feel really grateful to be alive, but also to be a part of nature and to be able to support nature because it also supports me. I have the added benefit of being a researcher and also working at a tribal college where I get to teach about beekeeping and pollinator stewardship. So I do a a few different things all under the hat of um, pollinator advocacy. Can you guess how many different types of bee species there are in the world? It turns out that there are over 20,000 different kinds of bees. Depending on where you live, there's going to be some that are very specific to where you are. So, for instance, where I live in New Mexico, we have about 1,400 different kinds of bee species here. So we're in a real hotbed of what we call pollinator biodiversity right here in the southern Rocky Mountains. And a lot of that is just due to our landscape. Some bees really like it where it's warm, others like it where it's cold, some like it where it's jungles or deserts, but they all learn from their environment how to actually survive. And so they are as much a part of the ecosystem as they are helping to reproduce it. Most of us are probably familiar with some of the more commonly known bees, like honeybees and bumblebees, but there are so many kinds of bees to learn about. Both honeybees and bumblebees are what we call social bees. So they tend to live in a little cluster in a hive or colony. And then we also have some really cool alkaline bees, which are green little sweat bees, and they're metallic looking, and they're bright green. And they usually come out early in the season into the orchards. We also have other types of orchard bees or mason bees. These are bees that will make little clay tubes in order to rear their young in. And some of those bee species are what we call solitary. So they live alone. They don't live in a high family, but they do come out and interact with each other each season. And then there are even some ground nesting bees as well that like to make their home in the ground like bumblebees, but they may also be solitary. It's incredible how many types there are and how unique they all are. And they look so different. You know, some of them, the males have yellow eyes. Others, they're black eyes. There's even some bees in Australia that are bright blue. Some are really fuzzy. Some may be a little bit more kind of shiny looking like a wasp, but they're very different from wasps. Although I think historically, researchers have thought that most bees have come from a wasp and wasps are solitary. So at some point, the wasps recognized that maybe it was better to work with others. And so they formed a a family and a colony, and then they became a hive. Honey has been celebrated throughout human history, playing significant roles in different cultures and religions, starting all the way back with ancient civilizations. And as Melanie mentioned, honey has been used as medicine for thousands of years. In ancient times, it was applied to wounds for its antibacterial properties and consumed to treat a variety of ailments. Hippocrates, the ancient Greek physician known as the father of medicine, prescribed honey for lots of medical conditions, including sore throats and digestive issues. But making honey is no easy task. Honeybees visit about 2 million flowers to make one pound of honey. 
and how they turn flower pollen into liquid gold is truly a remarkable process. Bees make honey through a lot of hard work, that's for sure. The pollen is their protein and the nectar is their carbohydrate. So they need that to be a complete diet, not only for themselves, but also for any babies that they're rearing. So what will happen is as a bee is born, she actually has several different jobs in her life. And the very first job is usually as a housekeeper bee. She will tend to the rest of the hive. She'll help to keep it clean. And then after a few days of that, she has special glands in her mouth that she can then start to produce royal jelly, which is kind of like mother's milk. It's really concentrated and full of a lot of vitamins. What she'll do is she'll now be able to go and feed all the other little tiny baby bee larvae. So they look like little grubs. And she'll feed them so that then they can grow. After a while, though, those glands sort of minimize, and then she can actually start to do other jobs. And one of them is to become a forager. The forager bees are the ones that go out into the wild to gather pollen and nectar, which they will then bring back to the hive. And what ends up happening is that nectar is actually really watery. And so if they were to just put that in their honeycomb, it would actually ferment and make them sick. So one of the ways that they've learned how to make it last for a long time is to turn it into honey. And so the bee actually has two stomachs. One is one where she actually eats and digests. The other one is kind of, we call it a little honey crop, and it's just a little pouch where she holds the nectar and she brings it back and then she can actually pass it to her sisters. It mixes with enzymes in their mandibular glands in their mouth area, and then they will basically store it into the honeycomb. They actually will also fan it too. They'll beat their wings really fast to move the air like an air conditioner so that then it can help to dehydrate the honey and remove some of the water. And that way it gets thicker. Once it gets thicker, then all of the plant sugars that were in that nectar become concentrated and it actually turns into honey. So it takes a lot of them to produce not only enough to feed their family, but also even extra that then beekeepers can harvest. And what's really cool to also consider too is that the honey that they collect is going to taste different depending on the flowers that they collect it from. What do bees need to be healthy and to thrive? I'm so glad you asked. Main thing they need is good, healthy forage. Definition time! When Melanie says forage, she means flowers. Forage is an integral aspect of the relationship between flowers and bees, supporting pollination, reproduction, and ecosystem health. For the flowers, forage is a vital part of their reproductive cycle. They rely on pollinators like honeybees to transfer pollen between flowers, enabling fertilization and the production of seeds. In return, bees receive nectar and pollen as food sources, ensuring their survival and providing energy for colony growth and maintenance. Flowers and bees have co-evolved over millions of years, developing a mutually beneficial relationship. The availability of diverse flowering plants is crucial for supporting bee populations and promoting biodiversity. It's all about the flower power. Bees are really, really intelligent. The reason they collect so much nectar and pollen is because for those bees that live in places that have a really cold winter, 
they know that the temperatures are going to get cold enough that then there won't be any flowers, but they still need to eat. So they will collect as much as they can during the warm season and store it so that then there's enough for them to eat through the wintertime. It's like having their own pantry. And so interestingly, for them to be healthy and to thrive, they need to be able to have a diverse amount of food, amount of flowers. And also each of those flowers, not only does it have different flavors, but they have different vitamins and minerals that they need. So one of the ways that we can help to ensure that is by making sure that we plant enough flowers and to avoid toxic sprays or chemicals that might contaminate their food. Sometimes humans think they know better than nature, but we have to remember that we are a part of nature. And sometimes, even though we may be well-intentioned or think we're doing something positive, if we don't stop and think about how it connects to everything else, we might overlook something and it might end up being kind of negative. So yeah, I mean, being mindful of what we choose to eat what we choose to grow and how we care for it and how we care for our spaces, for our land and for our water and for our air. All of that is required for things to live healthy and including us. It's amazing learning about the vital role bees play in pollination, ecosystems, and agriculture. In the United States, bee populations are declining due to parasites, pesticides, habitat loss, and disease. This has a major implication for food production and the very delicate ecosystem health we are discussing here today. What small actions can you and your family take to keep bees healthy? Are there areas in your life where you can raise awareness about the importance of bees and other pollinators? How do changing seasons and temperatures affect the habits of bees? So with bees, they have different kinds of genetics. And I like to describe it to people as if the genetics is like the story, it's the script. And then the environment is like the stage. When the script and the stage come together, then we get to see the performance. We get to see their behavior. So depending on what's in the environment, it's going to actually impress upon how they behave. So when it's warm out and flowers are blooming and they can smell those perfumes, which that's the way the flowers are communicating to the bees, like, come visit me. I need you to help move my pollen. They will actually then respond to that and get out there and go and forage. And then as the temperatures start to get colder and actually even as the daytime starts to get less and less and the plants start to dry up, the bees recognize that the season is winding down. Now they know that they need to actually shift into their winter survival mode. And what happens is they actually don't hibernate. What they do is they gather up into a cluster and they rotate around eating their honey reserves that they stored and they shiver. They basically move their wings and they vibrate a little bit and that actually generates enough heat for them to live through the winter. Even if it's negative degrees out, they can actually maintain a livable temperature inside their hive. So interestingly, I mentioned genetics, but the way the environment actually shapes their genetics is what we call epigenetics. And that's actually really interesting because all organisms have it, including us humans. And basically, we have different scripts that will turn on and off depending on how the environment is affecting us. Bees have what's called genetic plasticity. 
And that's what's actually allowed them to live in so many different kinds of environments, to live in the desert or to live in the tropics or to live in the mountains or to live near the ocean. They are adaptable and they're able to change their behavior depending on where they live. We interrupt this program for a local weather bulletin, where we find out how climate change has affected the weather where our guests and listeners live. This week, Melanie tells us about the impact recent wildfires have had on the ecosystem in New Mexico. We had a really big wildfire year before last, and it actually burned for over 80 days and was 51 miles long, which is basically 100 kilometers long. That was just fire. And so that actually burnt up a lot of habitat. And then we actually were lucky enough to get rains that came and put out the fires, but then the rains washed all that soot and ash and actually all of the seeds that had been burnt got washed down and away. And so I've been working with a group of indigenous matriarchs who are women leaders in their community to help build seed sanctuaries where we can grow more wildflower seeds and then be able to share them with each other to help regenerate some of these landscapes. Thanks for that update, Melanie, and for all the important work you're doing. If you'd like to provide a local weather report about how climate change is impacting your home, please visit wethechildrenpodcast.com, fill out the consent form, and drop Zach a voicemail. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. How has human activity and climate change had an impact on bees? So... Unfortunately, some of our practices like industrialized agriculture, which has had its benefits and has helped to produce a lot of food to feed people all around the world, has also unfortunately included some pretty negative practices like using more chemicals or adding a lot of fertilizers and disrupting the soil where some of these bees live. And so humans have impacted the survival of bees, but also their biodiversity it's becoming increasingly evident that our actions as humans, especially the industrialized agriculture practices Melanie mentioned, have big consequences for the planet. From the tiniest ant to the biggest blue whale, every living being is intricately connected and dependent on a healthy environment. That's a responsibility we all share. 
We have to remember, too, that as humans, we're one of the youngest species on this earth. Some of these other plants and animals have been here a lot longer than we have. So they know a bit more about planet Earth than we do. And so I think when we can look to nature and see how nature has actually been able to provide, then we can start to copy that. And that's called biomimicry, when you actually use natural processes and try to replicate those to promote healthy stewardship. And what would happen if bee populations got too low? You know, it would be a really sad situation, that's for sure. I think we would see a lot less diversity in plants. We'd see a lot less foods in our stores. Some people don't realize, but bees are even responsible for producing things like milk, which you might wonder, like, how do bees make milk? Well, they don't actually make milk, but they're the ones who are pollinating the alfalfa in the forage that then the cows are eating, and the cows are the ones making the milk, right? Are some communities or places in the world doing a better job when it comes to protecting bees? And what can families and kids do to preserve and protect bees and other pollinators? I think some places that are doing really good with their pollinator conservation are places that have good habitat. So places including communities and municipalities like where they have parks where there's pollinator forage. There's programs called Bee City USA and also Bee City Canada where folks can actually nominate their city and work with their municipalities to help put a lot more pollinator forage in. Spreading awareness and spreading information about the benefits of pollinators. You know, some of them do have stingers and so people might feel a little bit threatened by them. But the truth is, is that they're just really wanting to go and collect the food that they need so they can provide for their family. Have you ever been stung by a bee? It doesn't feel very good, that's for sure. But did you know that bees can actually mistake us for flowers, especially if we're wearing strong smelling lotions or shampoos? As it turns out, bees don't want to sting us, and sadly they die when they do. But when they feel threatened, they act to defend their homes and families, just like we might want to protect our own families if we felt they were in danger. How can we respect and understand animals' instincts while keeping ourselves safe? On your farm, you breed some bees to provide a service and some for research. What is the service that you and the bees provide and what are the research purposes of your bees? Since I'm a queen bee breeder, and I specialize in making more mama queens to share with beekeepers, I'm able to share them with folks who either maybe are new to beekeeping and they want to start a hive, or maybe they have hives, but maybe some of the queens are either sick or getting to the point where they can't lay fertilized eggs anymore, or maybe they want to introduce some new genetics into their apiaries. Also, I'm what you call a landless farmer, so I actually don't own any land, and that has really encouraged me to think creatively as to how to access land. So I work in community, and it really does take a community to raise bees. I'm able to connect with area farmers and gardeners and different land stewards and managers who are able to provide space to host my hives. And so in return, they get the pollination services that they might need, say, for their apple orchard or for their their fields, and my bees get diverse nutrition. In terms of her research, Melanie's interest is in epigenetics. When it comes to bees, 
epigenetics can play a significant role in shaping various aspects of their biology and behavior. So some of my research looks at different locations and seeing how bees behave at different elevations. Being here that I'm in the Southern Rocky Mountains, my farm is at 8,200 feet, which is about 2,500 meters of elevation. But I also get to work with beekeepers in California where we're right on the coast. So we're at zero foot elevation. And so I really like to work in community with other beekeepers to find bees that work well for their location and to help nurture those different strains or races of bees so that then folks have bees that are acclimated to where they are and that they have a a longer survivability. If somebody wanted to start keeping bees for themselves, where should they start? I'm so glad you asked. I often share with folks that one of the best places to start is to actually help with promoting habitat, right? So make sure that the bees will have enough food. Luckily for us, some bees like honeybees can fly up to five miles to find food. Although the farther they have to go to get it, then that means the more energy they're using. So ideally you want them to have enough forage really close by, but luckily they can fly around to find different kinds of food if they need to. One of the things I also suggest for people who are interested is to also learn about all the different kinds of bees in your area. Sometimes folks may not have the space to have a full honeybee colony, but maybe they can have a bee nest block. If you're interested in bees, a nest block may be a great place to start. Imagine a bee nest block as a cozy little home for bees, or a bee condo. This house is usually a piece of wood with lots of tiny holes drilled into it. People hang these nest blocks up in trees or under bushes in their gardens. Then, different types of bees, like mason bees or leafcutter bees, move in and make themselves at home. It's like having your own bee apartment complex. Even if people don't have space to plant flowers, they can also plant maybe a container garden or a planter with some flowers if they don't have a big field or a big backyard. And then thirdly, I would say to connect with a local bee club. There's a lot of bee clubs around the world. You can join one that's local and find a mentor. And maybe you can ask if you can shadow them, which means that whenever they go to check on their bees, you can go with them and you can start to learn what's involved. And that way you learn how to be safe and how to enjoy it, but also to provide good management for the bees. What lessons can we learn from bees? There's a lot of lessons we can learn from bees. They're constantly teaching me. But that's one of the things I actually really like about working with bees is that I'm a forever student. I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned, and this actually kind of connects to an African proverb I once heard, which is, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And so when we work together, just like a colony and a hive of bees, we can actually get a lot more done. And it's almost like many hands make light work. The more people that help with something, then it's actually a lot easier to do. And so bees have really taught me the importance of community and how to work in community. There's people that have different roles and different jobs at different times of their life, but all together they keep the community going. I've also learned from them just how important it is to really acknowledge our food systems and to really start to learn more about how do we get the food that we eat? Where does it come from? How was it produced? And so for me, bees have really taught me to be really thankful 
for having such delicious foods to eat and to be able to share them with my family. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for buzzing along with us today as we explore the fascinating world of bees with Melanie Kirby. We hope you enjoyed learning about the vital role bees play in our ecosystem and how we can all contribute to their conservation. Remember to spread awareness about the importance of bees and take small actions in your own life to support their well-being. Stay tuned for more insightful conversations and don't forget to be kind to our pollinator friends. If you'd like to learn more about Melanie and her work, please check out the links in our show notes. Who knew such tiny creatures have such a big job? Next time I see a bee buzzing around my ice cream cone in the summer, instead of swatting it away, I'll think about everything Melanie taught us today and maybe even say thank you. And since we've learned so much today, let's test that knowledge. We have a quiz about today's episode. Here are the three questions. One, what does a migratory beekeeper do? Two, can you name two ways bees play a significant role in our ecosystem? Three, what can people do to better protect bees in our local communities? Hey, I think I know all those answers. Please check out our Facebook and Instagram, at We The Children Podcast, to find this week's quiz questions and post your answers there. Or visit www.wethechildrenpodcast.com and leave us a voice message with your responses. We just might play them on our next episode where we'll reveal the correct answers. Now it's time for the correct answers to last episode's quiz questions. Here are our listeners, Jackson and Mitchell, on polar bears and Arctic conservation. What is a polar bear's favorite food? I would say seals and walruses. What are three reasons the Arctic is warming faster than the rest of the planet? I would say the first reason is climate change. The ice will melt and it'll release a bunch of gases into the atmosphere, which will make it hotter. Second reason is the sea ice melting. It leaves a lot of exposed ocean and the ocean water absorbs the light instead of reflecting it. And the third reason is Arctic amplification. Why might climate change lead to more conflicts between humans and polar bears? Who lives on the ice? Polar bears. What happens if the ice melts? Well, there's no ice for them to live on, so they, and they can't swim forever. So where are they going to come to? Land. And who lives on land? Human. Great job. Thanks for calling in. Subscribe to We the Children on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, we, the children have the power to make a difference for our planet. Until next time, we'll leave you with today's voice of hope. Our previous guest, polar bear expert, Elizabeth Kruger. It really gives me hope that more and more people are talking about these issues and starting to act on these issues. And I think it's gaining momentum and we're still not there yet, but seeing that momentum in action is really exciting and and gives me hope that we'll figure out how to live in a way that where we can live well and also ensure that future generations are going to live well too. Spring. 
spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.